Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of Greater Than Code. You can find all of the details at linode.com slash greater than code. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7-365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. Visit linode.com slash greater than code and click on the Create Free Account button to get started. Welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 218. My name is Damian Burke, and I'm here with Lori. Hi, I'm Lori Barth, and I'm excited to be joined by our other panelist, Casey Watts. Hi, I'm Casey Watts. I'm excited to be here with our guest today, Isa Harikovalesko. Isa is an international woman of mystery and an all-around good gal. She's a software engineer, but not classically trained. She currently works at the Internet Archive, primarily running point for one of their oldest web products, BookReader. Her main work challenge is to move past maintaining the 12-year-old code and get to new features that can be easily developed. She lives in San Francisco with her partner and child, and they are committed to helping rebuild their city as the pandemic continues its devastating march across the U.S. Through all of this, Isa tries to find the magic and miracle in everything she sees and does. Welcome, Isa, to Greater Than Code. Hey, thanks for having me, y'all. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for being here. Our first question for you, the first question we ask on every podcast, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? Yes. Oh my God, that's such a great question. You know, I really think that my superpower is being a bridge. I say that because I find myself in a lot of intersections and some of them are quite polarized. I do my best to help move the conversation forward, move the dialogue forward so we can actually get some progress in whatever I'm doing. That sounds really lovely. I There are so many of, of those bridges looking at your bio that I want to talk about, but let's start with the ones you want to talk about. Is, it, is there any particular areas that you're connecting that are most important to you or most salient? You know, in this climate, um, Damien, I feel like everything is on fire. Everything is priority one. How do we mitigate that? So I really don't have anything that's super burning in my heart that I wanted to start off with. I can start off with maybe myself, my bio. Let's start there. I am raised in San Francisco, but I was born on the island of Negros. It's part of the island chain of the Republic of the Philippines. And I am the daughter of a public defender and a basketball player. So both of my parents are actually like, you know, people of the people. They naturally win the hearts and minds of others. And I just kind of want to do the same here. You know, moving to America is usually like, you know, you move to America for a better life. But for me, I don't think I ever did move to America for a better life. I think I just moved to America to follow my family. But 
we were already good in our little island, little province of Bacolod City, Negros. So I'm still trying to kind of digest my immigrant experience and see where I can be most impactful in both of my communities, San Francisco and the island of Negros in the Philippines. Um, part of that has brought me to working with Rails Bridge and Bridge Foundry. And I've found, you know, just found friends that are aligned with helping others and doing better for the community. And that's where I want to live. I want to live in this place. And, you know, at the age I'm at, that I'm at now, I'm moving into a generational shift where my generation is be are becoming leaders. You know, I see that in my family structure. I see that in my community structure. And it's still very murky to me. So I'm just also trying to find ways that I can move into that position with grace. That's a great answer. It resonates with me a lot being a bridge. And I think I just noticed that the groups you volunteer with have bridge in their name, Rails Bridge and Bridge Foundry. And I think that's no surprise. Thanks. I just noticed how cool the name Bridge Foundry is. Yeah, Bridge Foundry is really cool. Um, it came from the, the whole movement of Rails Bridge. I don't know if y'all have heard of Rails Bridge before. Have y'all ever heard of Rails Bridge before? Yes, but we'd love to hear you talk about it. Okay, cool. So Rails Bridge is 100% volunteer run open source project that provides technical training to those that are often underrepresented in the tech sphere. Um, it started off with two Sarahs, Sarah May and Sarah Allen, and they just kept finding themselves as the primary two non-men in the Ruby conference space, right? And they were like, well, you know, let's change this. Let's move the needle. So they started making these workshops and it just caught on fire by like 2000. It started in 2009, but in 2011, it was really like really going to the point where there was there was a rails bridge in South Africa, Berlin, I mean, across the world, Mexico. And rails bridge is actually also a, a, the catalyst for everything you see now that's DIY programming. You know, from boot camps all the way to the courses that you can take online for free. Uh, RailsBridge was actually, is not the first, but it's definitely a catalyst for all the things. Like my contemporaries in that space, you know, is um, Elena from Women Who Code, you know, Rails Girls came from that and all these things. But, you know, Rails is just one piece of technology. So there are more bridges that came out of that. Scala Bridge, Elixir Bridge, Mobile Bridge, Clojure Bridge, Go Bridge. So what happened was we saw and identified that we needed to create a support structure to help all of these volunteer-run workshops and organizations. And so Bridge Foundry came about. And Bridge Foundry is the umbrella organization for all of these bridges that helps not just organize you know, them, but you know, we can... Now, because of Bridge Foundry, any donations can be, you know, um, tax deductible through our 501c3 and all of that. We really formalized at the top, but still give the power of self-organization to the other bridges for them to, you know, do their thing. Each one is its own unique place. That's why it's a Bridge Foundry. Oh, and we're hiring. We're hiring a CEO for Bridge Foundry. 
this is a big deal because we got enough money to hire somebody with a big vision. So if you're interested in helping move this amazing organization that started in 2009 to the next era to help diversify the thought space of tech and, you know, the idea of inclusion, you know, let me know. We're looking for you. That's so exciting. <laughs> I think I learned about RailsBridge back in 2010 when I was teaching programming. And this was one of the best resources that I could find to get people set up and running. And it's so cool that it's like scaled up over the last decade. Yes, uh, you know, and we're still going strong. Uh, the Elixir Bridge is actually one of the bigger uh, movements currently now. Elixir, Go, and Clojure, I think, are the big hitters of our bridges in recent times. Oh, and everything is open source too. So curriculum, everything we can help we help people get bootstrapped and it's not even just to teach newbies how to code you know people that are seasoned engineers that want to learn new languages are also you know part of our ecosystem yeah i don't know any of the languages you've mentioned i just hear about them so this is interesting for me i'm like i don't know rails i don't know closure i do know someone who's involved in closure bridge which is cool sweet yeah it's uh it's a whole world of stuff that like, there's so many languages, you could never know like 2% of them. <laughs> yeah, totally. a, lot of them, a lot of them don't feel accessible. I don't know how I could just go learn closure real quick. I guess I could buy a book or do an online tutorial. But to have a community like a bridge group to support you is huge. People to ask questions to people to hit the same bumps with, as you're learning. Like, uh, I don't know, the value is immeasurable to really lower the barrier of entry to these technologies. Agree. I couldn't even have said it any better. I'm really glad you said that, Casey, because like that's something I tend to overlook, the value of com a community when learning. You know, I said I wouldn't know how to, how to learn closure. Like, oh, I don't know, I'd, I'd write some closure programs, <laughs> which is what I would do, and not even think about having that sort of <laughs> that infrastructure as a bridge is to connect me to closure <laughs> with that community. So that that's wonderful. Yeah, it makes sense you wouldn't. You wouldn't think to jump at one of those because they don't exist for a lot of things. A lot of stuff you want to learn, you can't just jump into a group like a bridge group to learn it. So we're lucky we have it. I think community learning is such an interesting topic if we want to dive into that more. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in this time, in these times, you know, we're all distributed now. Many engineers are working from home. Kids are schooling from home. Finding community is more important than ever. IMO. <laughs> I guess one of my questions for community learning is, obviously, we are so distributed, but we're also dealing with people who are on very different schedules and people who are maybe able to devote varying amounts of free time to this practice. So how do you how do you kind of keep groups moving together or don't you? What does that look like? For RailsBridge, you know, we actually have... Um Traditionally, the workshops are two days, right? We commandeer a startup office and we bootstrap somebody, you know, we bootstrap people's computers the night before. And then the day, the next day, we just do eight hours of training and things are changing right now. The great thing is, is that we have, you know, our Slack channels, our Google groups, and our curriculum is free for anyone to use so you can actually do it at you know at any time and if you're stuck you know you could hit us up on github or the google groups or things of that nature 
And I think we're still trying to find our way through this new world where we can no longer meet in person. When Lori brought up people being on different schedules, that's something that's near and dear to my heart because basically I don't want to work on anybody's schedule. And so I tend to focus highly on asynchronous communication. Uh, Also because I'm a words person, I like words. Whereas I'd always thought of community building as being a synchronous thing. You know, we're here in conversation. It helps if we're in the same space. Uh, And so what you described, RailsBridge has both of those as part of the community. or All the bridges, probably. They have the the in-person lectures. They they have the uh, eight hours together. But then they also have, have like, hit us up on Slack. (laughs) Point is, you know, hit us up on GitHub. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just a sign of our times. People are reaching out. We have to reach back and vice versa. Always keep that door open. I'm really excited to see, you know, what, what, how we can innovate in community building in, you know, in this world, in this new world where we can never see each other again in person. No, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm sure hopefully we could be, you know, we can get past whatever this giant pandemic thing. But yeah, I'm here for it. I'm here for the asynchronicity. I'm here for giving what I can when I can. And that's like the beauty. That was just, that's just the magic of RailsBridge. If you have two hours, you can just go add a little something to the curriculum, do a little something, whatever you want to do. We will, you know, accept your contribution. It's open source. We'll accept your contribution at any, you know, however you can give it. Do you find that, you know, past participants in something like RailsBridge end up being teachers for future participants and that as people move along in their journey, they're able to help in those larger communities. I guess one of the things you mentioned, like, how can we do this better asynchronously is I think Google Groups is really cool. But one of the things I've seen work really well for live time question asking and asynchronous and all that kind of thing is Discord. Because it's such it's a place where so many people now that now it has threading too, but like, whoever is there and present in the conversation at the time can pitch in but you don't feel like you need to catch up on everything that's happened for the past, you know, weeks that you haven't been on there. And so I think one of the challenges that I've always had when I come into communities is feeling like I always need to be present in the community or else I don't have the context to contribute. And Discord moves so fast that it, for me personally, it's always forced me to sort of let that go and be like, okay, I'm here right now. I can participate right now. And when I'm not here, it's okay if I'm not part of the conversation. It's almost like a real live moving in and out of a room situation. I don't know, that's sort of a random offshoot. But it's interesting to think about how people grow. And if they stick around in a community, they can start to be some of the leaders and the mentors and the the helpers. Yes, you really hit it on the nail there. Because, you know, one of the reasons why RailsBridge has lasted so long and all these bridges have lasted so long is because we do actually cultivate a leadership pipeline through our volunteers. Even the people that are learning are volunteers. We're not just teaching you. You are, everyone is contributing back into the fold. So for me, like, let's say, let's go back to when I used to be a student because I was not a primary volunteer at first. I mean, I was a student. And then in order to get to the next workshop, somebody, a newbie, had to go teach the other newbies at the next workshop the things that they learned, you know, and it's just like these little bits of pieces. You can, whatever nugget of knowledge that you have around this topic, you can go teach the next person that. And you don't have to have any more than that because someone else will be there to, you know, hopefully someone else will be there to do that as well. And then we, 
So we've cultivated this like small leadership pipeline with not so much um, responsibility where, you know, people feel so trapped and cannot, you know, they feel like they cannot move into a different, I don't even want to say move up because it's more lateral. Everything is lateral. Everything is flat. So like, you know, a student can be a teacher the next workshop and then go back to being a student, you know, and that's how actually we've created such a sustainable ecosystem is because, you know, we're not just teaching down. We're all learning from each other and everything is quite flat in structure, organizational structure. That's so beautiful. Reminds me of a joke from, a, from an old 80s sitcom. The kid comes in and is like, I'm tired of school. I'm quitting school. So you can't quit school. You're in the fifth grade. What are you going to do? What kind of job are you going to get? I'll teach fourth grade. But but apparently it that sort of thing can work. So then my question is, you know, I'm I'm an engineer. How do you do that intentionally on purpose? How do you create a system where where it's community and, and teaching and learning is going in all directions? All of these things are still very uh you know, up in the air. But one of the things is, you know, we ask transparent we we're just transparent about it. We're like if we don't have a teacher for next time, there won't be a workshop. So what you gonna do? Not, you know what I mean? What are we going to do? What you going to do? You know, and it's there's no guilt or anything to it. It's just we ask. We ask what we need of what we need and who can fill them will be able to fill them. And I think that's what helps the most, you know, like, oh, we need someone to help with bootstrapping. OK, so this one person takes two hours of their day and to help people bootstrap their environments on their on their laptops and then that's it that's all they do now they can go and have a drink or you know <laughs> all these things but we ask that's you know closed mouths don't get fed so we ask and we're transparent and we try to make goals reachable and we also support so like say um you know we need another organizer a workshop organizer and anyone can do it because we have docs and a cookbook to create a workshop and we also have just other people who are genuinely ready to answer and i love that uh, i love the suggestion of a discord because i really love that like real-time event stream there where you can just disassociate and disconnect from whatever happened before so thank you for that i'm going to bring that up it's a fabulous answer you're transparent about what you need and you open your mouth and ask for it the best answers are simple and obvious in retrospect. I couldn't have come up with that. <laughs> Another theme I heard was many hands make light work. If you only ask them to do a small amount of work, they don't mind, it seems. That sounds right to me. Absolutely. No, no one like, you know, just like greater than code. I really love the way y'all scaled, you know, your panelists and all of that. So not one person is stuck and beholden to making the thing run and it's still like you know it's not you know we're people we can't automate people you know <laughs> to you know to a certain extent so i really appreciate <laughs> these little patterns that i'm seeing now you know that are reflective of the type of work we've been doing as well so there's something i really want to talk about and uh we're not naturally getting there so i'm just going to jump <laughs> Pivoting from, <laughs> pivoting from rock and roll to software engineering. How does one do that? How did you do that? Ooh, I don't even know how I did it, um, but we could, uh, let's try to break it down. So rock and roll, rock and roll in 
software have all I mean, music and software have always been my two things to go to when you know as a kid like I've been on AOL since 1992 you know what I mean and like nobody was paying for internet but I had all these AOL discs you know and like and <laughs> and whenever I got a virus I had to figure it out and like reset my computer before my mama knew you know things like that just was always part of my life and music has always been a part of my life too you know, I'm not a musician outside of like high school band, but, you know, you don't have to be a musician to be music. So I did a lot of things. I actually had a small music store in my 20s to fund my college. You know, like I had a little music business selling mixtapes in New York City in Times Square in, on 34th Street, on 14th Street, all the way down. And that helped me understand, you know, the relationships that I needed, the the relationship building I needed to learn in my 20s, because I was just, you know, you figured out in your 20s. So that happened. And then from there, I started getting, you know, commissions to create people's websites, do my website, do this, do that, you know, for small businesses. And that kept my tech ball rolling. So when I came back to SF, the tech industry was so far beyond all the WordPresses that I could make, you know? So it's like, how do I make this jump up into the real game of tech as an engineer while still making my ends meet? Um, I found it, you know, music was my thing and indie music and SF is still real. Um, I got a job at uh, the Rosebud Booking Agency. The Rosebud Booking Agency, let me just give you a little thing. It's like a real dent they put a real dent in american music you know like my boss mike cap is he managed john lee hooker knows howlin wolf you know like all of the greats had to connect with rosebud and to have that connection there was great because i learned all about the back end of the music business all the paper pushing of the music business and when it came time for me to jump into my career as a software engineer I literally found the the app they wanted to make to replace what I did in booking, in music booking. I found the music booking app uh, that was going, that needed my expertise in music booking. And I traded that for some experience in Java, in full stack development. That's how I pivoted myself into software engineering. I used what I knew. I found the app that they were trying to make to monetize what I knew, you know, to automate what I knew. And voila, I became a software engineer for a music booking agency called Gigwell. Shout out to Glade Luca. He's an amazing developer and let me hang out. <laughs> but that's how I did it. I just took what I knew and I found the app for it and I went to work for that app. That's so cool. That's ingenious. How did you find this app? Angel List. <laughs> angel list i mean that's our we you know all the startups register themselves when they need a thing or two so you know just trying to also keep the things i love connected music and tech you know sf music tech conference was big around that time as well so just you know anything can be made an app so right that's the joke no i i love it because it's combining uh, there, there's an old joke about well, writing and dance 
and and I believe it's true uh, true about software too. You can't you can't write about writing. Uh, you can, but there's very little there's very little cause for that. There's there's no cause for dancing about dancing. Uh, software that's about software is mostly well, some of it's really great, but like it's not what we need most. <laughs> so you have to combine it with something else, and so combining it with something you love sounds like a really great path. Yeah. Thanks. And I, I mean, that's my suggestion to anybody trying to move into tech is to use what you know and find the people that need what you know and barter and trade what you need. Because really, that's all we have are the resources that we carry and the resources that we share. I was just going to say, I think that's a really important point because a lot of people coming into tech, especially underrepresented people, are career changers. and you know, you're not necessarily going to differentiate yourself by being the 50th person who knows XYZ technology, who's applying to the same job, but you, you end up differentiating yourselves by the skills that you have from your previous career that someone who's brand new to the industry, brand new to any industry just doesn't have someone who came right out of college doesn't have that perspective doesn't have that context hasn't worked in, you know, like a nine to five job environment before that sort of thing. And so Whatever, whatever skill set you bring, whether it's I have deep knowledge of retail or I know how to juggle things from working in fast food or I've managed or I have an eye for design because I was in some sort of aesthetics place like that is the thing that's going to make you stand out amongst that sea of people if you're a career changer. And I, f- I feel like we get really bogged down in interviews and conversations with, you know, what tech do you know? But most of the time, the thing that makes you good for a specific job has nothing to do with the tech they're using and everything to do with the context of the domain that you're working on that makes a difference. Aisa, what's a specific example of something that your unique background helped with at that company? Oh, yes, yes. Man, I love Gigwell. I love. I just want to preface that. Gigwell is so dope because they are doing something, you know, they're creating... A, easy way for artists and managers to book their talent and the really unique thing that I knew was booking talent <laughs> you know um, Gigwells is made of comprised of DJs too you know like Glade the primary engineer he's a DJ but the demographic and audience that they were targeting were agencies and they didn't have that agency experience that I had um, they didn't cycle through contract changes that I did, or they didn't um, have deep relationships with other vendors that booking agencies have, you know, so they were missing pieces of the, like they knew what they wanted, but they were just missing the little tactical pieces that needed to be glued together. And for me to be there was to provide insight into that type of world while I was also, you know, coding in Java for the first time in my life. which was like, wow, <laughs> and Angular. I don't even know, like, who does Angular now? I'm on Web Components now, though. I'm on Team Web Components. If anybody else is on Team Web Components, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so you had you had expertise in talent booking, and that expertise is super valuable for people building software related to talent booking. And I just, like, th- this is so important be- because, like Lori said, the domain is the more is the more important part of building software. Building software, I think the actual activity is understanding and codifying the domain. Uh, so it's much more important to have expertise in the domain than expertise in whatever silly tech stuff you're using. And I also want to point out that everybody has, if, if you have been in the workforce for 12 months, you have expertise in something. 
And there are engineering teams that need that expertise. I worked at McDonald's for probably three months. And there are things that, you know, that there are people writing tech that need to know those things. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you're doing. If you've been in the workforce for 12 months, if you've been alive for 25 years, you have expertise in something and everything relates to tech somehow. And so there's some way that you can contribute quite greatly to a tech team. Yes. Thank you, Damien, for summarizing all of that. Goodness. I really appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that was that's wonderful. <laughs> Imposter syndrome is a big theme. And I know, I say you've grappled with it before. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. I thought about that. This year was the year I shed it all away. I, I shed all my technical imposter syndrome away. You know, part of being a bridge sometimes makes you want to negotiate all of the things. And this year was the year that I didn't negotiate any of some of my principles, the engineering or, you know, my design or my architectural choices. Yeah, you know, this year was the year that I stopped. Even, you know, as a bridge for me, as a woman even, I've always had to negotiate everything that I've gotten, period. You know, full stop. At the Internet Archive, what I love about it is is that the organizational structure in engineering is quite flat. So the most experienced, the most fantastic, the most smart people that I work with are quite humble and have allowed me to be the expert in my little domain. And because of that, I've gained a lot of confidence to stick up for my guns, you know, stick up for my technical guns. It's like, it's very empowering. And I'm glad that I've had a chance to actually be part of a supportive system enough to be proud of my work to the point where, you know, like some things you just can't negotiate with me. and. Yeah. Shout out to everybody who's helped me along the way with that, because really, you know, like and also I'm not a, I'm not a classically trained engineer. So there may be some stigma there that I internalize that I no longer have because I've been allowed to be the domain expert in my little, you know, silo, my little tech silo I work. I'm seeing a theme in your life, Isa. When you're getting support here, it feels great. You're empowered and you can do more things and you want to give support to people through the bridge groups and get, help them feel empowered and get started. That's beautiful. Thank you. So since you brought up the Internet Archive, I'm going to take that as permission to ask about something more technical that where you have experience and, and domain expertise that I don't. <laughs> I recently worked with a code base that's old enough to drink. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and she talks like? back too. <laughs> it's a wild ride. God, I love I love our monolith. It's a giant, giant monolith. Maybe ten gigabytes on our bad days. You know, on our good days, <laughs> six gigabytes. <laughs> I don't want to say too much more about that. But one of the analogies that I love about <laughs> Yes, exactly, Casey. Ten gigabytes ten? From is 10 gigabytes of code? I can't imagine what it looks like. How can a human read it? How can your IDE process it? <laughs> <laughs> no IntelliSense like, for you. Are you limits <laughs> there? Yeah. You know, I don't know anything about it, but, you know, every, the thing builds for me well. So, and there's all these processes, these homegrown internet processes, like, that have been already established before I've gotten there. So everything kind of works pretty well-ish, you know. But for me, I have a couple of analogies when I work with this, you know, work on our code base. One is that it's a big 
fluffy beast <laughs> that you feed from time to time. And then it lets you warm yourself up in its fur. You know, like it's, it's a real, <laughs> it's like, uh, I don't know if you all watched the airbender, last airbender. And then um, there's this kid, his name is Aang. He has this big, giant, woolly flying beast. Sky bison. <laughs> yeah, sky bison. Uh-huh. And sometimes it tunnels in it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so there's that piece. That is that part of it. Also, too, this code base has so many little ecosystems and villages in it. So it's like, for me, it's like, y'all watch Beauty and the Beast? <laughs> I mean, like, have y'all seen Disney's Beauty and the Beast? And when Belle goes in and starts singing her little town full of quiet people, you know, and then he, she starts naming all the people that make the village run just like that. There's a baker over there cooking up some ops, you know, like cooking up some DevOps. There's, you know, there's, there's all these other people working in it to create this ecosystem. And that's how I negotiate through that giant behemoth is if I'm in a place where I don't know, let me go ask. Let me go ask the butcher to see if he can cut me up some bones, you know, to fill my, you know, API request. You know what I, I really think it's the people that make the code. And to be part of something that has such a strong legacy and that is continuously built to outlast us is one of my favorite things about working at the archive. I'm just a steward there and I have to do my best to get this code in shape before my stewardship ends. And I will fight for it because I know that the patterns I create now will outlast me. Yeah, a village and an ecosystem it's not, you know, we, we think of us classically trained engineers, we think of it as engineering, like like you design something and you build it like a skyscraper and it's got all of these plans and structures. Uh, my business partner likes to talk about code as being grown as a gardening metaphor. Uh, but this is bigger than a garden. This is like a, it's like a small nation. <laughs> yeah, kind of. 10 gigabytes of a small nation. <laughs> I mean, you know, and we we cultivate our internet from the ground up. This is like some real homegrown internet from networking all the way up to my little web components at the top. So, and then everything in between, everything sidecar in between is built to help archive humanity. And it lives and it operates as culture and communities. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Because we're also trying to capture communities, right? Like the whole country of Aruba put their library up on the Internet Archive during the pandemic. And now we have the largest collection of books written in a native language called Papiamento on the Internet for anyone to learn. Wow. Um, You know, things like that. Like, I just think it's. We're just trying to mirror what we see in people and humanity. I keep saying the word humanity like it's some mad cliche, but it is what it is. This is this is the most unprecedented time in our lives, and the internet is more important than ever. How do we keep it from being homogenized? How do we keep it funky like it was in the '90s? You know, like I want to I want to keep it funky. So how do I help with that? This is so amazing. Do you feel like this is a bit of Conway's law in action? Uh, Conway's law, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to define it, especially because I might be using the wrong term, is the idea that a software code base replicates the organization of the structure of the people that created it. Uh, and so in this case, 
with the Internet Archive being, first of all, a community of itself, people that are very much in community. And secondly, and probably as a cause of that, because they're very much about community and culture and human community and culture. And so they reflect that. And so then the code base also reflects that. Hell yeah. You cannot separate the people from their written work. You know, code is prose, is, mm. you know, poetry is all, you know, is now, you know, business, our business decisions, our business decisions, uh, you know, are representative of now, but also, you know, representative of the future. Uh, one of the things that really shook with me this year was, or I'm just going to say it, I'm just going to say it. So Brewster, Brewster is our head guy at the Internet Archive, right? It's his thing. He's our main librarian there. He's their top leader. And it's really inspiring for me to listen to him speak because he's also an engineer and a librarian. And one of the things that he said to all of us was, you know, how do we scale for time? Continue to scale for time. We're just not scaling for, you know, incoming requests. You're scaling for time, literally. So, and I think that position, that mental position allows us more flexibility to think and be true to our technical choices and fight for them too. I mean, like it's no cakewalk, you know, I have a team and we all have, we're all highly opinionated. So how can we distill all of the goodness from everybody in order to get to where we need to be? I also love that that's the criteria you use for making your technical decisions. It's like, will this, la- will this outlast me? Yeah. It's the best. It's the most comforting of all of my fences. You know, will this outlast me? And how can we make sure it does? Like, you know, the book reader is some of its code is over, you know, 12 years old and it's still running and it's running strong, you know, and it had to do things in the UI that wasn't available. And now we have more hands to move it out of jQuery 1.10 into the new world of, you know, dynamic imports and, you know, browser native APIs, et cetera. So we can get to, you know, um, Holodex. I'm trying to get to Holodex. We're closer to Holo, Star, Star Trek Holodex than we were last year, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's a vision. I'm going to capture all of human culture and history so that we can have good Holodex when we get them. <laughs> yeah, all that metadata, you know, structure it. Structure it well, y'all. <laughs> I, I can't help but think about how the Internet Archive. As you mentioned the the guy in charge is a librarian, and I had and like it's a librarian project. It's very much about the organization of it. You know, growing up, we think of librarians as as about Dewey Decimal System and putting books in the right place, which it is. But it, that that's a tiny piece of a giant and incredibly difficult science, which is information organization, uh, the organization of knowledge of humanity, which is a lot of what I think I do and a lot of us do on with our with software. I feel like that every day when I get to work, you know, it's like, wow, okay. There's a certain responsibility, I feel. And I'm just happy to be mission aligned with some really good folks, you know, with RailsBridge, with Bitch Foundry, with the Internet Archive, with and all of the grassroots things that I do. You know, everybody's hit by this pandemic and San Francisco is dealing with high overdoses tech flight, you know, people fleeing, all of these things. And every day I'm just working to, you know, help my little community, my hyper local community. I'm buying eggs 
every day in extreme markup so I can go help the restaurants, you know, that I love so much, you know, things like that. And I see that type of kindness with the people I work with. And that's very empowering. All right, Isa, we're getting near the end of our time. Is there anything else you want to share with us that we didn't get to cover yet? No, I think um, I think I just had a really good time talking to y'all. I wish that I could have asked you more questions for sure. You know, have our moments, have more moments. But I, I'm okay. Hopefully, I can connect with y'all on LinkedIn, and we could be friends on Twitter, and we can, you know, do all the digital things that we do. Absolutely. Oh, this yeah. this also sounds like a great time to plug uh, the Greater Than Code Slack channel, uh, where we invite all of our guests. Uh, and and also is open to our patrons. But I hope to see you there and get to know you better there. So one of the things we like to do at the end of each episode is to have everyone who's been involved in the episode go around and talk about, you know, what really stood out for them and reflect on something that they're going to take away from this conversation. So let's start with Damien. Do you want to go first? I will go first. I think the big standout for me, uh, and, it, and it goes all the way into into your work, Isa, is the focus on community over architecture. Architecture being the idea that we can build something that's nice and neat and structured and we understand and it will stand the test of time versus how human society, technology, and culture has been built for the past 5,000 years, uh, which is through culture, community, communication, and that sort of thing. And it feels, it feels very messy to... Uh, I like that term, classically trained. To classically train people who feel like they can they can put everything in a box and stack boxes on top of each other. Uh, and that's just so not how the world works. The takeaway I have is this theme of community and mentorship that we just kind of keep coming back to all episode. If you want to learn something new, it's a really good idea to find a community to get support from. And then once you get the support, you're well equipped to give it back to the same community. That's like the RailsBridge model. And I think that can apply to so many things. I'm going to try to remember that, to apply that in other groups that I'm in. Um, You know, with this episode, y'all have really helped me with just talking to other engineers about non-code. It's quite challenging, um, you know, when you are actually like in the thick of the code and doing the work, doing your everyday work, to step back and have discussions around other topics but can still like have that engineering mindset. You know, like I don't really talk to a lot of engineers outside of my work. And, you know, Twitter isn't the best place to connect, <laughs> to connect, you know, at this level. And so I really appreciate the vulnerability and openness that you three have given me. And I love the way Greater Than Code stays sustainable, keeps yourself sustainable. And I think that, you're right, that that whole thread of community and sustainability, you know, just I really appreciate that all of you picked an hour or so to hang out and chat with me. But then now we can all just drop our stuff and go on with our merry way afterwards. So I really love that. I love that everyone is okay to just do a little bit and then, you know, do something else after. I love that. So I guess I'll finish up with reflections with the idea that I think we know that we're all adjusting right now, but every time I talk to someone new, I realize a different way or a different organization or a different group of people that's finding new ways to collaborate in this remote pandemic world. And I I love that because sometimes you hear challenges, but so often you're hearing new opportunities. 
And it's nice to know that there may be some benefits that even when, you know, we're all allowed to be in the same place together again, there are things that we've learned and we've improved upon. So we'll get the best of both worlds going forward. An uncomfortable situation can sometimes force us into better outcomes. All right, so thank you so much for joining us. It, it was a real pleasure to have you. And I hope we get to hear from you more later. Yeah, thanks again, y'all. I, I mean, it's just a pleasure to be here with y'all and have honest conversations with some like-minded people. Awesome.